I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack West, medical oncologist and associate clinical professor at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area, and I'm hosting all, uh, Lung Cancer Considered, uh, a podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. I'm very happy to be joined today by Christine Lovely, MD, PhD, who uh, is Associate Professor of Medicine at uh, at, uh, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we're going to be talking about some of the highlights from ASCO 2019. Thanks so much for joining, Christine. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Great. So let's talk about uh, s- just a few of the, the key points. And I think one of the interesting presentations, even though it wasn't really highlighted in the oral session is uh, is the five-year outcomes from the Keynote 001 trial that Dr. Eddie Guerin presented. And uh, this looked at about 550 patients. Most had been previously treated. And we've seen these data before in, in earlier iterations, but not the five-year outcomes. Now, we've seen some of these uh, data before in earlier iterations, but we hadn't seen the long-term outcomes that are really remarkably uh, encouraging, showing that uh, all the way out to five years, we're approaching about a, a five-year survival of 20%. And uh, not surprisingly, it's a little higher in the treatment-naive population, but still a a little more than 15% of the previously treated patients. And when we look at those patients with high PDL one about just a little less than a third of the patients, fully a quarter of uh, these patients who were previously treated are alive five years out, about 30% of the treatment naive. And so, uh, Christine, what do you take from, from these data uh, do we learn anything new? Are you more encouraged uh, than you were even before? I know that that already checkpoint inhibitors and pembrolizumab in particular have kind of revolutionized the field, but uh, any new results from this? And, and at what point can we think about patients maybe being cured if they're out this far? Yeah, Jack, so all great points. I mean, I think there's tremendous enthusiasm about these data for several reasons, especially when we think about the historical comparator, which was a five-year life expectancy of about 5% before immunotherapy. So clearly, you know, when we start talking about a third of patients, um, that's very exciting and, and really shows the progress that has been made in this field. That's wonderful. You know, I'm enthusiastic about these data, but Ultimately, what we want is for everyone to survive five years. So 33% is is clearly a huge increase from 5%, um, but I still think we need to be enthusiastic about these results while still pushing the field forward because we are still talking about the majority of patients with advanced lung cancer who are not surviving five years. So I think we have excitement, but we also need to keep pushing the bounds and, and try to advance it so that 33 or a third becomes a half, becomes three quarters, becomes all patients. To your point about cure, 
Now, I think it depends on how you define cure. Do you, do you define cure as off therapy and no evidence of disease? Do you define cure as, as you know, maybe there looks like there's some residual tumor, but it's not growing? You know, I think maybe instead of the word cure, we think about long-term management, and certainly five years survival of approximately a third is progress in lung cancer. And that's a point well taken. That you know, if we are at a point where people are living this long, whether it's technically eradicated the last cancer cell or not, we've still made incredible progress, and we can hope to grow on that. Let's talk about um, some of the new targets that emerged and. This is a, an area of lung cancer or oncology in general that has been one key method of improving outcomes, which is identifying a, an often relatively small subgroup, but having therapies with a profound benefit. And, and specifically, you provided some commentary on, on some of these newer agents. There were a couple of, of uh, oral therapies for MET, Exxon 14, Capmatinib, and Tapotinib. Uh, there uh, were some new data presented on Blue 667, and um, we've also had some some prior data as well with Loxo 292. So for for red fusions, and we had some encouraging data for EGFR exon 20 mutations as well uh, with uh, TAC 788, and uh, there's also Poziotinib that has some previously demonstrated data in this setting. Which of these do you see as emerging as targets that we should be looking for now or should expect to have therapies available in the clinic in the next 6, 9, 12 months that are going to uh, change practice in, uh, in the broader community? Yeah, so I think, Jack, there's there's a lot embedded here. So I'm going to start with maybe EGFR exon 20. And so exon 20 are things that if we're doing our standard EGFR testing for the point mutations or the small indels in um, exon 19 or exon 20, so exon 19 deletions or LA58R, we're simultaneously, while we're detecting those, we're also finding exon 20 alterations. And one of the issues with exon 20 is it has not, except for one specific exon 20 variant, exon 20 in general has not been a target that we can use the you know, standard of care EGFR inhibitors. So that's been problematic because after LA58R and exon 19 deletions, exon 20 insertions are the third largest group of EGFR mutations. And so having new drugs like TAC-788 and Poziotinib, the TAC-788 data was presented um, at ASCO this year, you know, really affords us the opportunity to take these mutations that we're already detecting right now in the clinic and offer patients precision therapy based on those findings. I think there's still a, a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of how we best target exon 20 insertions, but having availability of drugs, and hopefully those drugs will continue to move forward, is a huge step, um, I think, in, in the treatment of EGFR mutant lung cancer. With respect to RET, we also saw data, as you said, on um, Blue 667, and there's another drug from Loxo that is um, highly selective towards RET. I think one of the things that um, we've known about RET for a long time in lung cancer and in other tumor types, one of the major issues has been is we haven't had selective RET inhibitors, and the multi-targeted kinase inhibitors that we've been using towards RET have a lot of toxicity associated with them from off-target um, off target effects non RET. And so these new generation inhibitors like Blue 667, which you heard about at ASPO, and like Loxo 292, which has been presented before, 
are a lot more selective against RET, which helps us to bolster response rates, which is great. I think for RET, what's the most important point is, if we're going to develop these drugs, then we have to be actually testing for the target. And I'm not sure that everybody is doing that right now. And so I think big take-home message is, you know, make sure you're testing. You know, we can develop great drugs, but if we're not testing for the alterations, it doesn't matter. And so in, you know, to really deploy these RET drugs in the clinic, I think you know, it's fantastic that we have more selective inhibitors and those are proving to be uh, more efficacious, but we also have to temper that with, we must continue to push the message to do molecular testing on these tumors so that when you find a RET fusion, you can actually use these drugs. And, and I would presume that the same concept holds true for MET, uh, very effective agents, but obviously they're only uh, appropriate considerations if you're identifying it. So, so they're all predicated on broad testing. But, but now we're moving to six or seven or more different targets, you know, EGFR, ALK, ROS, uh, BRAF, V600E, NTREC as well are kind of, are already listed, but we've got MET and RET and uh, you know, EGFR exon 20 may or may not be uh, uh, in, you know, in your other assays. But, um, but now you pretty much are at a point where we need to do NGS testing, which takes a lot more time than the individual tests. How much of a challenge do you see that as, especially when we're seeing some sobering real-world real world evidence come out that uh, in, in actual broad community-based practice, uh, testing is is not done as as well as we would uh, hope to see, and when the results come back, they aren't often acted on as as we'd hope. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of issues there too, and you know one of the big issues is um, from my perspective is is just what test do you do? And I think there's a lot of ambiguity about what's the best test, what's the most comprehensive test, what vendor do you use. Um, I think Nathan Pennell from um, Cleveland Clinic did some really nice work on looking at, it actually is more cost effective when you're talking about looking at multiple genes um, and, and multiple different types of alterations within those genes to actually do the NGS testing. So uh, certainly NGS is my preference um, and as comprehensive as a, a profile as possible. I think one of the bigger issues that we all as, as physicians face is is not which test to order only, but also, and probably sometimes more importantly, is this issue with tissue insufficient quantity and, and the delay that comes with you know sending the tumor sample to get tested and then you find out that there's not enough material. And so I think we really need to approach this as you know an educational forum for not just doing the testing, but then making sure that we are encouraging oncologists and interventional physicians who are actually doing these procedures to make sure that they get core biopsies, that they get sufficient tumor quantity so that there's not long delays or need for repeat biopsies to actually get this results, which absolutely, these testing results, if one of these mutations is found, it absolutely is going to change how the patient is, is treated. And so I think, you know, kind of big picture, this needs to be tackled from multiple different perspectives in terms of education about tumor quantity, getting sufficient material when you're in the OR or the interventional suite. You know, helping people figure out what what is the best test, encouraging the use from from my in my opinion, encouraging the use of NGS testing so that you maximize tissue utilization by getting the broadest panel testing upfront as possible. Let's turn to KRAS G12C, and uh, there was just a very preliminary report uh, by Dr. Marwan Fakhi, uh, and it was 
in uh, the phase one study experience with AMG 510 was actually not in the lung cancer track. So I think it may have fallen under the radar for for many people. Uh, it was just 10 patients with advanced non-small cell included on this phase one study of, uh, of this agent at a, at a range of, of doses that didn't show any prohibitive toxicity or uh, any real concerns at all for tolerability in the range tested though, thus far. Uh, of those 10 patients, five partial responses were seen. And obviously, we're talking about literally just a handful of, of cases. But KRAS, G12C is about 13% of, of lung cancer. And it's been a target that we've known about and has eluded us for decades. How encouraged are you by this? Is this really too early to, to get excited? Or do you think this could be uh, a really important observation for lung cancer? Yeah, I think, Jack, that this is a really important observation for lung cancer. You know, I absolutely agree and, and temper my enthusiasm somewhat by the small number so far, but it's hard to argue with five out of 10 patients, all who had been pretreated, who had response to this agent AMG 510. So I actually think that, that this report of this uh, investigational KRAS G12C inhibitor was one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting thing presented in the lung cancer space at ASCO 2019 because this target is common yet has been so elusive. And so I'm really excited to see how this drug continues to move forward um, in clinic and, and see more patients treated in, in larger numbers. And of course, you know, we all want to see this agent move uh, earlier in, in therapy as well. But I think as other targets have shown us, you know, when you start to see response rates this high you know, in previously treated patients and then start moving it forward to earlier, earlier, um, earlier lines of therapy, we expect just as good, if not better, results. So I think uh, this is a very encouraging finding. Really excited to see how this moves forward. Congratulations to the investigators. This, to me, was huge news at ASCO 2019. Very good. Well, thanks. I, I also look forward to seeing more results on this. We saw some retrospective data on uh, mutation STK11, uh, as well as KEEP, K-E-A-P. And, and the, the data that... Uh, were a, a multi-center effort at collecting the data and uh, uh, largely led by MD Anderson, suggested that patients with these mutations, one or both, uh, who are a very significant minority, up to about a quarter of the patients with lung cancer, have a very low probability of benefiting from immunotherapy. What did you think of this uh, really pretty complex presentation, and do you think it changes management uh, at all as you approach patients in the clinic now? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is a great example of how we need to think about layering different mutations. And so it's not enough to just think about, you know, KRAS mutations alone, but potentially also combine KRAS in this case with, with the um, uh, um, keep one mutations. I think, you know, this is um, not the first example of, of, of uh, a mutation which may portend worse response to immunotherapy. Uh, you know, I think the data are exciting and, and, and many congratulations to the investigators for putting together such a large data set. I, I think like anything else, we really need to see this tested in a prospective clinical trial before we start really um, acting on this and uh, in, in, in recommending uh, acting on this to our colleagues. And so I, I'm hopeful that there will be prospective clinical trials looking at effects of SDK11 mutation on uh, it, it, the magnitude of benefit from immunotherapy. I also think, you know, um, 
it comes down to when we don't have prospective data, you know, looking at the patient in front of you and thinking about what makes the most sense from them and what are their preferences. And so take home message, encouraging data, you know, we're all across all types of cancer looking for biomarkers or response or lack thereof to immunotherapy. We'd like to see some prospective data in, in this space uh, before we really implement this uh, in a rigorous way as standard practice. Excellent. Uh, another broad concept that we saw some uh, data on, although I don't think anything immediately practice changing, but certainly consistent, convergent data on the concept of circulating tumor DNA uh, being monitored for early response or early uh, indication of progressing disease in lung cancer. And in fact, this has been also seen in many other cancer types that I think just lends to the credibility of the concept. However, uh, Ben Levy gave a, a, a very nice discussion of the, uh, the data and the limitations that included the cost issues uh, and the, the lack of clarity of how exactly you would use this data to improve outcomes. What do you think of the, the state of the data now and whether or if we're likely to use uh, plasma-based testing to guide the the need for treatment or a change of treatment in the next few years. Yeah, so I think this question uh, about how do you use uh, cell-free DNA probably needs to be parsed by what stage of disease we're talking about because there are already some circumstances where we can use it today, for example, T790M, of course with the caveat that Ocimertinib is moving into the first line, but there was an implication for cell-free DNA testing for T790M to select for Ocimertinib in the second line. And so you know, there, there probably will be clear examples in the metastatic setting where um, we use cell-free DNA to detect emergence of resistance mutations that may help us to um, change our therapy. I think where cell-free DNA really has tremendous potential is in disease monitoring and earlier disease stages. Um, and, and that's, to me, very exciting because unlike liquid tumors um, like myeloma or CML, where they have these concepts of major molecular response by drop in BCR able levels, we really don't have that in lung cancer. We don't have a circulating biomarker. And I'm encouraged that down the line that you know, looking at cell-free DNA will be that biomarker. I think you know, there's still a lot of work to be done and, and appreciate Dr. Levy's comments in this space. You know, this is not, in my opinion, not ready for prime time just yet. We need prospective trials. We need to understand, you know, the differences in different types of cell-free DNA testing um, because they have different sensitivities and specificities. Uh, we need to think about how we, uh, you know, implement this in a cost-effective way because you're talking about very deep sequencing um, that that is, um, you know, not not feasible from a technical perspective, but we want to use it in, in, in a cost-effective way. And we want to also think about, you know, importantly, if you're going to do a test, you want to act on it. And so it's not enough to just say, oh, the cell-free DNA amount is increasing or decreasing. What does that actually mean for the patient? And how do we change therapies and prognosticate based on those levels? And I think those questions require large prospective clinical trials to really address the issue. So overall, I'm very enthusiastic about cell-free DNA. I still think we have a lot of work to do in this space before it's routinely implemented across all types of lung cancer. I think we'll see it move into the metastatic setting uh, more and more, but in the earlier disease stages, I think large trials, prospective, collecting information on 
you know, the disappearance and reemergence of, of self-redNA and, and specific mutations, you know, kind of like the Tracer X study that was done by Charlie Swanton and his group um, in, in the UK, you know, those kind of big studies need to be done to really, I think, uh, really fully prove the clinical utility in early stage. Great. Last thing I wanted to ask about was a novel agent, lurbanectidin, that has been uh, studied in previously treated, uh, now relapsed, small cell lung cancer, a setting where we've had a lot of trouble uh, moving the needle. And this agent in a phase two trial as a monotherapy demonstrated a 35% response rate. That included patients with chemo-resistant or sensitive disease. And when you looked at the patients with the longer chemo-free interval, the response rate was 45%. This phase two trial, we've been disappointed by other studies of different agents in the past in this setting. How encouraged are you that this could be uh, an appealing therapy in the relapsed small cell setting? Yeah, so I think this is one of the most exciting things that came out of ASCO 2019 as well. I think if we compare it to historical comparators, you know, second-line cytotoxic chemotherapy for small cell response rates, 5 to 10%, or even you know, PD-1, CTLA-4 um, in small cell second-line response rates around 20%, uh, and, and I would say with the immunotherapy second-line combination immunotherapy loaded with toxicity, you know, these numbers um, for lorbanectidin look pretty exciting. And I think this is a space where we're talking about a novel agent um, that, that changes transcriptional profiling of the tumor. Uh, where I kind of see this fitting in um, is potentially your second line after patients have received chemo IO for, for small cell. I think there's absolutely a need for um, for thinking about therapies in, in the second line, now that chemotherapy and immunotherapy have moved into first line, I'm encouraged uh, about the response rates seen with this agent. I also think we, as a field, need to con continue to think about precision in small cell lung cancer. Right now, we treat all small cells as the same, but there's an emerging body of data which has really been spearheaded by Charlie Rudin at MSK, um, uh, John Minna at UT Southwestern, that uh, and many, many others, that there, that there are molecular subtypes of, of, of small cell lung cancer and, and how those are going to play into our therapies, you know, is to be determined moving forward. But big message, you know, it's exciting to have a new agent with, with this sort of response rate in small cell lung cancer. Big congratulations to all the investigators. Elise Paz-Ares was the one who presented the data. Um, I think we need to continue to push, you know, see how this agent uh, um, trends in larger patient cohorts, but then also think about as we're developing the therapies, let's try to bring some precision um, to how we actually uh, parse patients with small cell lung cancer in the clinic. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, uh, Christine. It's been great talking to you. Uh, this is Dr. Jack West on behalf of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. Thanks for listening. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. Please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.